Shabbat Shalom. I'm speaking to you just having returned from the Aleph Kala, which is the annual gathering of the Jewish Renewal Movement, and this year was held in Fort Collins, Colorado. And our week included classes in Kabbalah and quantum physics and gender theory, Midrash writing, Hebrew kirtan, Judaism and ecology, a blessing of the moon complete with telescopes, a spontaneous Black Lives Matter demonstration, and a conversation about how to create a transformative Judaism. And after all that, even though we were all exhausted, we celebrated a warm and gorgeous Shabbat. And a whole troop of people had put on angel wings. Now, I'm not joking, like real angel wings? <laughs> and they went around offering blessings to people. Like you couldn't go 100 feet without being blessed by an angel. And, and, and we went into the huge room where everyone was davening. There were about 500 people. And I was sitting in the balcony, which had a glass, sort of a glass uh, wall. And everyone on the ground floor began looking at me. And I looked up, and I discovered that there was an angel hovering over me with these huge wings. And after that, the angel, who happened to be Rabbi Razel Raphael of Philadelphia, flew off to wave and spread her wings over the whole community. It was quite memorable. And I'm remembering this angel of blessing tonight because in our parasha there is an angel that's a little scarier. So our parasha, Balak, is a shift in perspective from the rest of the book of Numbers and in fact the rest of the Torah. Our Torah camera veers from the journeys of the Israelites in the wilderness and pans over to another place where there is a prophet named Balaam who is not an Israelite. Uh, he, he is a prophet, that's his calling, and it's also his livelihood. And his job is to provide divination and to give blessings and curses. He has an open channel to God, it appears. And because of this open channel, the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, comes to see him. First, actually sends a delegation to see him. The king of Moab has been observing the Israelites proceeding through the wilderness. And he's worried. He sees a large group of strangers. And he is worried about how many resources they're going to consume and how much land they're going to take up. In fact, he speaks about the, Isra the gathered Israelites as a, an it or as a him, as a single entity, like a huge monstrous entity. And he wants to defeat this foreign entity, and he wants Balaam's help. He knows that Balaam is an effective prophet, and his blessings and curses work. And so he sends a delegation of elders and magicians to Balaam, and Balaam receives them and says, wait here, spend the night, I need to talk to my supervisor. And Balaam goes to speak to God. In fact, since Balaam needs overnight to consult with the divine, it's probably in a dream that Balaam communicates with the source of life. And the message he receives, a strong message, is that he's not to go with the elders and magicians and he is not to curse the people because the people is blessed. He doesn't, it's interesting that the divine does not say they should be blessed, but they are blessed. So this is, this is, a, this is already the fact. Balaam receives this download of the divine reality in which the freed Hebrews are already blessed and they can't be cursed. And Balaam 
dutifully relays this message, but the king doesn't accept it. And this time, the king himself goes at the head of the delegation to speak with the prophet and offers him a large reward if he will curse the people. And Balaam says, I can't take a bribe to curse this people. I can only do what God wants of me, but stay the night. I'll ask again just to be sure. And this is where our doubt about Balaam's character has to start to come in. Because if he already knows what God said, why is he asking a second time? Might it have something to do with a large reward he's just been offered? It's as if he's hoping that reality will be altered, that the nature of the world will be altered so that he can materially benefit from cursing the Hebrew people. Balaam's choice to inquire a second time reminds us of when we incline toward a false worldview in order to benefit ourselves. Balaam is still plugged into what God has told him is the truth, but he's wondering if there may be some wiggle room. And God seems a little miffed. In fact, the divine presence allows Balaam to go with the king and his dignitaries but nevertheless wants to teach him a lesson about reality. And this lesson takes place in a kind of dreamscape. Suddenly, Balaam, riding in the morning, is not with a large delegation of king and magicians and elders, but he seems to be on his own with a donkey and two servants, very much like Avraham and his donkey and two servants. And suddenly the donkey swerves off and into a field. This is presumably an undignified scene. Uh, Balaam is very angry. The donkey has seen an angel with a fiery sword standing in the path. Balaam, the great prophet, can't see the angel. He beats the donkey to make her go back onto the road. He doesn't appear curious about what she can see that he can't. He can't see the angel. He can't see the danger of the fiery sword. He's just frustrated that his donkey, who he expects to behave in a certain way, is acting contrary to his version of reality. And this is perhaps a mark of his own narcissism, right? He assumes that she sees what he sees. Then the angel moves to a narrow lane between two vineyards, and now the donkey can't go off the road, so she pushes against one of the walls and crushes his foot. And Balaam beats her again. Again, she can see what he can't. By now, we realize that Balaam's prophetic powers are quite limited. His hope for a false reality has blinded him to the angels that really exist. The donkey now moves forward. The angel with the sword blocks the path. And the donkey, protecting both the prophet and herself, lies down under Balaam, at which point he becomes enraged and beats her viciously. And then she speaks. This should surprise us. <laughs> she says, what have I done that you have beaten me three times? And Balaam says, you're making fun of me. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. And I love this part because, in fact, Balaam is standing right next to a sword. And he could probably ask the angel if he could borrow it. But he can't see it. Many things are unseen for him. Not only the angel, but the animal he has known for years. And the donkey quite rationally says to Balaam, look, I'm your donkey. Am I in the habit of acting like this? And Balaam says, well, no. 
And now we see that the aton, the donkey, is finally getting through. And it's at this moment that the divine opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel with a fiery sword and he bows down. I have to think that this is a hopeful story for us because Balaam doesn't continue to refuse to see reality. He's no longer blocked from seeing what is in fact in front of him. And once he can hear and see the angel, the angel accuses him. Why have you beaten your donkey three times? I came out as an adversary to you, and I would have killed you, but she spared you. And Balaam says, I made a mistake. I will turn back. Ashuvali. And this means not only I will go back, I will literally go back and not go with the king, but I will do teshuva. Ashuvali. I will repent. And the angel says, go with the people, but say only what I tell you. To me, it's not an accident that Balaam hears the voice of the donkey simultaneously with the voice of God. The donkey may be the, in the lowly position here, but it's the donkey who can see the angel. We could take this figure of, this, of, the, of the aton to be of the, of, the, of the donkey that Balaam is riding in a couple of different ways. We might, for example, imagine this scene to be a metaphor for the, the earth that carries us. Or the animals who benefit us. Or even our own bodies that carry us around all day. All those bodies we think do not speak. But they do speak, if we would listen to them. And if we read the story that way, it can remind us of all these supposedly unspeaking beings and even our unspeaking planet that really tells us so much, that speaks, and that we need its wisdom. Alternatively, in a different reading, we might take the donkey as a symbol of any person or group of people who we force to suffer for our own benefit. And if you read it that way, you can see the parasha as a kind of liberation theology. It's the, it's the suffering one who receives revelation. And in this reading, we need to also to know what that donkey sees. We can't be like Balaam, who thinks that because he has a stick, he gets to determine what is real. Balaam has lost his way when he says to himself, I know what Balak is telling me to do is wrong. I really know that, but I'm going to check a second time just in case. I will consider making up a story that allows me to do what profits me, even though it isn't true or right. We all have the potential to go to that place but we can come back. Balaam, in doing Teshuvah, reminds us that we can orient the larger story again. We can listen to voices that we have forgotten to hear. So near the end of the story, Balaam does go and stand on the heights and look down at the people of Israel. And he does find that he cannot curse them, only bless them, just as God said. He tries to curse them three times, and three times he blesses them instead. You can imagine the frustration of the king of Moab. The third time, in an attempt to curse the people, Balaam turns his face to the wilderness, the Midbar, the world that speaks. And this time we are told that he sees the people of Israel, Shochem Shvatav, encamped tribe by tribe. And 
Rashi has an odd explanation for what this means, that the people were camped according to their tribe, tribe by tribe. He says their doors did not face one another in order that each family could preserve its modesty. And for this reason, the Shekhinah dwelled among them. They, they, they had some privacy, each family. But the Baal Shem Tov has a midrash on the midrash. He takes this midrash of Rashi's, and he says, when Rashi says their doors did not oppose one another, he means something else. He says, it's, it's a parable. It's like this. It's like two students of Torah who are studying together and they are arguing with one another. And sometimes when they're arguing with one another, they won't acknowledge the truth because their intention is to contradict the words of their opponent and antagonize their opponent. Even if they know inside themselves that their opponent's words have right in them. But the essence, the Baal Shem Tov says, of one's intention when one argues with someone in sacred study should be to discover the truth so that they may fulfill the words of the sages. When two people sit together and study the Torah, the Shekhinah dwells between them. So this teaching of, in the Baal Shem Tov's mind, this teaching of Rashi is that the door, that Balaam blesses the people because their doors do not oppose one another, actually means that they that the tribes don't seek to antagonize one another for the sake of being right, but rather to understand the world together. And then we can translate the world for one another. When I read this midrash, it reminded me of the story of King Solomon's dream. When the young King Solomon saw God in a dream, God asked what he wanted most. And Solomon did not ask for long life and did not ask for wealth, but rather asked for wisdom. And the wisdom that he received was the ability to speak every human language and every animal language on earth. Wisdom consists of hearing the voice of the donkey and all the voices in the world. The prophet Balaam shows us how to do teshuva for our own failures in perspective and our own selfishness of sight, and invites us to learn to perceive the angel. And when we pay attention to the voices around us, especially the ones we didn't think were speaking or didn't want to listen to, we can learn to hear the world's voice that is larger and wiser than our own. Shabbat Shalom.